This editorially independent podcast is supported by Visit Flanders. This podcast features music and audio used according to the fair use principle. When, when I drove up, I noticed there's a, a church here yeah. and there's a graveyard. And I heard a rumour about Canuda beer. Yeah. Rumour, inverted commas. <laughs> it's a, a rumour. Uh, I think someone told me the word I think they used was kark, hof, sop. Is that correct? Yeah. Which means in English... Cemetery... Cemetery juice. juice. Yeah. Juice. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, why would people say that? Because the water that we use for brewing or beer, it comes below the surface of the brewery. So the surface below the brewery can also be the surface below the cemetery. Below the graves. The graveyards and the graves and so on. That's but the truth when, when, the when, And the special taste from the water is when it rains. The rain grows to the dead bodies gives a special taste to the water, and with that water we make our out out of nuts. It's brown. So that's the rumor. That's the rumor. And do, do you he still hear that rumor? We told it by ourselves. <laughs> okay, but I mean, I'm guessing the truth of the rumor is that you have like a it's a, it's a it's a closed off city water system, right? I don't know. Do, do like is it is it possible that the water well, comes not? through the graveyard? Why not? And when you hear the rumor, are you do you get annoyed by it? Or are you do, are you happy enough for people to say that? I, I let uh, let them say that uh, the water comes from uh, twelve meters below the surface. So it's possible that uh, some some water comes from over there. That's possible. I don't know. It. So all that all that beautiful human nutrient. Come, comes down into yeah, okay. the beer it's a circular economy <laughs> that's Lieven Knudde of Brouwerij Knudde he runs Brouwerij Knudde with his two brothers Peter and Steven today's podcast is about Brouwerij Knudde and about the village of Ene where they are located it's about community and resilience and people laying down everything to help those around them. In life, Brauerei Knudde's presence stretches to almost every village occasion, in each of Aina's cafes, at the annual Ainse Fetal Festival, at civic events during which the brewery serves as a kind of a town hall, and at baptisms and weddings and funerals. In death, then, the Ainenar gives back to the village's beer, contributing the nutrients of their bones to the glasses of Canada, which will be enjoyed for years to come by their sons and daughters and nieces and nephews and grandchildren. I'm Brendan Kearney and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast. Bison. 
my apologies for my English. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's um, not perfect. <laughs> it is. It's, it's much better than my Dutch. <laughs> this is Karel Willem de la Rue. He's written a book in Dutch about Brouwerie Knudde. So I wanted to speak to him before I visited the brewery. Uh, Eine is um, a small part of Oudenaarde. Um, Oudenaarde consists of, what is it, eight? I think it's eight small villages. We call it um, Deelgemeenten. Deelgemeenten, yeah. Uh, yeah. They make up Oudenaarde and Eine is one of those villages. But that's across uh, the river, the, the river, the Schelde, the Skeld, the river Skeld. I live at the good side of the river and is at the, the other side of the river. And what's, what's the good side and the bad side mean? <laughs> <laughs> it means nothing. It's just, uh, it's, it's an, an old habit, I think, um, in, in Ardenaarde and, and maybe in, in the vicinity of Ardenaarde. There's, there's always been uh, some kind of feud between the two sides of the river. I don't think it's typical for Ardenaarde. It's, it's, I think it's something you can be seen all over the world. But especially um, between Eine and Ename, there's um, a sort of rivalry. Um, both sides have breweries. Um, but Eine has Knudde. Eine has Knudde. Karel Willem tells me that Brauerei Knudde is as community-focused an institution as you'll find, a relic of the Second Industrial Revolution. Eine is one of the municipalities of Odenarde, a city in the province of East Flanders. Aside from Knudde, there are three other breweries in the city. Brauerei Liefmans in Edelare, known for its mixed fermentation Holdenband, now a part of the Duvelmorkaar group. Brauerei Roman in Mater, the oldest independent family brewery in Belgium. And tiny Brauerei Smissieu. Brauerei Peter de Vos and Brauerei Felix were two other well-known producers of mixed fermentation beer in Odenarde until they closed down in 1970 and 2003 respectively. Actually, Peter de Vos has been resurrected since 2015, contracting its beer production outside of Odenarde. Odenarde is often referred to in beer literature as the home of Old Brown, a beer of mixed fermentation which picks up lactobacillus during its open fermentation becoming acidified in stainless steel tanks. Indeed, Brauerei Knudde has produced no other style of beer during its 100-year history. It's very authentic and it's, it's very... Um, in Dutch, we call it volks, uh, which, which means it's... it's it's from the people. It's um, Knudde doesn't like to have uh, modernized machineries, and um, Knudde needs the people to brew the beer. Um, so they only brew on um, some days throughout the year, and on those days they need much more than machineries. They need a whole team of people, volunteers, who join up and who, who work very hard to, to brew the beer. 
So is is it is it a like a full time occupation for the people involved, or is it kind of like a a side project, like a cultural side project? It's not a full time job for no one. It's it's really a side project. Um, as I've mentioned before, Levin used to be the headmaster of um, the the largest the largest school in Oudenaarde. Um, his brothers are, um, I'm not quite sure which profession. Um, anyway, the brewery is not um, a full-time job for no one. Um, so it's, it's in the hands of the family, the, the uh, Knudde family. Uh, there are three brothers and they are joined by a lot of uh, really a, a large group of volunteers who come and help to brew. Um, but it, it's a family business, really. It's um, not professional. It starts. It started as um, a family brewery, and to this day, it still is. free to do whatever they feel like and um, you're absolutely right if you call it um, a cultural activity or a community activity because in in Ene, um, um for the last hundred years uh, Knudde has always played a role in all community activities in Ene. Uh, from soccer to um, the firemen, uh, through what's it called, um, Devemelken, p- pigeon sport, uh, flying the pigeons, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the Belgian thing. Pigeon racing, I guess. Yeah, pigeon racing, something like that. <laughs> but when, whenever there was um, a community in Ene, the the, um, the bonding fluid was or is Knudde. Few contemporary breweries in Belgium occupy such a central place at the heart of a village. And in this way, Knudde offers an insight into Belgian brewing of times gone by. The brewery's flagship, Knudde Brown, is a brown beer of mixed fermentation with notes of burnt caramel and red fruits and a dry, mildly acidic finish. It was once described by beer writer Michael Jackson as an honest, straightforward village beer from less self-conscious times. The beer's medium body, slight tartness and easy drink in nature render it accessible to the everyman Einanar to whom community traditions are king. You know, the ways in which communities live, work and interact today, fast-paced, online, craving massive choice, they raise questions about how long a traditional manually operated breweries such as Browery Canuda might be able to persist into the future. But in 2021, as breweries in Belgium seek to reconnect with communities in a post-COVID world, they might use Aina as a template for the future. One, two, uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? For this morning, uh, two, three eggs, I think, instead of two eggs. Two chickens, uh, one rabbit. Oh, no, no. This is Leven Knudde again. Oh, I, I. 
The brewery has two commercially available beers. It's Old Brown, Knuda Brown, and a cherry beer, which uses Knuda Brown as a base beer. The cherry beer is called Bison. So you can see it is uh, also, you see it here, it's Bison. Bison. Let's talk about that a little bit. So, okay, first I'll, we'll try the beer. En de Besson is er druk onder, die nemen gaat die Hintse muziker. Ja. Dat stond er in mijn is niet mist. Santé. Santé, op een mule. Something different? Ja, yeah. no, it's... Um, you, the, the brown base beer is there. You, yeah. you, you the, it's more like a play on the base beer than a than a full cherry beer. If you if you understand. No, full cherry. It's not it, it. And it's, it's, it's blending, eh? Yeah, and it has the um, the 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 stone fruit quality, like yeah. the fruitiness, but not too much sweetness. Therefore, we tried in the first time. We we tried half a half, half. Cherry half beer, cherry beer, uh, half brown beer, and it was too much from for the cherry. It was too heavy. Well, like too pithy. Yeah, yeah uh, it was not so. And was that? Did that beer also? Was it at a higher, sh- uh, like sweetness level? No, the cherry beer. No, no it was no, all no. fermented out. Yeah, it is. It's all fermentation is complete after two years. It's yeah. just, uh, sugar is gone. So, you said this beer appeared in like two thousand and. And nine, I think. Nine. <laughs> I have to suit it. And the brown you had for years before. Yeah, yes, yes. So why, why the decision in your, your, you know, side project brewery to make a cherry beer? My father, I think, also the before, made also cherry beer, but not commercialized it, just to to taste it or to. To put it in the Flemish stew and so on, and to, to for special times, but not uh, for commercials. And so we have told you, yeah, it it is in our cellar. Why don't we put it in in the bottles? And so, so we started. Now there's plenty that's interesting about this beer. It's a version of a cherry beer that Levin's father, who also brewed here at this brewery, made for his own consumption. For this commercial version, the cherries initially came from the garden in front of the brewery, and when they needed more, they took them from the orchard beside Levin Knuda's house one kilometre away. But as demand increased over the years, they started to order sour cherries from other parts of Belgium. The cherries needed to be de-stemmed before being used and so Creek Harvest every year turned into a big party at uh, Brauerie Canuda. Friends, family, locals volunteered to pick the cherries one by one from their stems in the courtyard of the brewery with bottles of Canuda Brown served as they worked. The Canuda brothers based the new beer on their existing one, macerating 30 kilograms of cherries on 250 litres of Canuda Brown hanging muslin sacks inside plastic fermenting vessels and adding liquid brown sugar to spark a new fermentation. After two years, they had what they described as pur Greek, the initials of which, PK, leaving jokes also stand for horsepower, Paradenkracht in Dutch. Because the PK was so intense, pithy, jammy and almond-like, they blended it back again in the ratio of two-thirds Knuda Brown and one-third Beka before packaging it. 
But perhaps the most interesting thing about this beer is its name. Bison. The symbol of the village of Aina is the bison. A broad, muscular animal with a shaggy coat of long hair which belongs to the bovine family. Now on my way to the brewery, I noticed prominent statues of bison on the bridge over the river Skelda, which divides Aina on its left bank from Nedere Nama on its right bank. Two concrete bison stand on each side of the river, four in total, each with its own bronze plaque. Levin tells me that the bison symbol comes from something that happened here at this bridge, the Ohio Bridge. What, what was the name of the guy about the, 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 that I should talk to for the war stuff? Chris Duvalla. Chris Duvalla. And, and Chris Duvalla is based in Aina or Odenagda? He lives in Beveren, also a small town in Odenagda. Okay, in Beveren. He's, he's from Odenagda. And will he know the story of the He knows the, the story the because, because in, he's an ex-colonel, uh, colonel retired from the army, so he has connections with uh, the people of the state of Ohio. Levin recommends I talk to a guy called Chris Doala to learn more about the bridge and the bison. So, I guess it's time to call Chris Doala. Uh, Levin told me that you you uh, have experience in the military that you were actually that you were actually a colonel. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I was uh, a regular. I mean, I was not in the reserves then, so I, my job was uh, was was to be an officer. I did the um, the military school um, in Brussels, and then uh, yeah, so I went uh, my career the whole way long um, as an officer, and then uh, I, I ended my career as a as, as a colonel. Yes. And did you like? Did you have serve in, in mostly in Belgium, or did you have any periods where you were um, an international sort of? Um... Uh, it was quite yeah. It was quite um, um, yeah. Some places. Um, the, um, first of all, I must say that um, the, I'm, I'm a civil engineer as well. That means that this opened a bit more, of course, the uh, international uh, possibilities. So I went uh, for four years in in um, in Gladbach in Germany. At that time, still uh, occupied uh, Western Germany, occupied by the the, you know the uh, light mm-hmm. forces at that time, um, but uh, uh, there I had the opportunity to uh, to work on a international staff with with American and and, and Brits and, and Dutch and French uh, guys, and um, the um, the that made me possible to um, uh, give me the opportunity to to have contact between all those countries and uh, as well in in, in the states. And then later on, when I was, I must say, I'm now retired for 15 years, mm-hmm. uh, that helped me to uh, to dig up uh, some 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 beautiful stories uh, related to the American input um, in in Belgium, especially in World War One. You can hear Chris talk here about the contribution of Americans to World War One. In fact, the more you talk to him about it, the more you hear how much of a thing this is for him. He has learned a lot about how the Americans helped Belgium, and in particular, how they helped Aina. And he seems obsessed with finding a way to express gratitude for that help. 
you know that at the end of the First World War, four million American soldiers were in, in Europe, of course, not only in Belgium. But uh, uh, so, I mean, and, and it's only in, in uh, say, April 1918, which is, uh, what is it, six, seven months before the end of the war, when Americans uh, came in on the uh, Ypres uh, Wipers uh, front, they have, they were able, the Allies, I mean the British, the French, the Belgians, were able to push back the Germans, not earlier, not before Americans were, were uh, shipped in. So, um, so they were, they were really instrumental in, you know, stopping that push from the Germans. Yeah, well, pushing back. I mean, yeah, going for victory. I mean, they, they were they were fighting a, a, a trench war for four years, and, and nothing, nothing. Well, yeah, they they said, okay, let's attack. It killed 100, 200,000 people, and then uh, two months afterwards, they, the enemy took back, uh, killing uh, the, again 200,000 uh, people on his side, uh, and I have the same position as, as four months ago. So it's only because the input of American um, military that, that the, the, the war was, was, uh, was able to be ended. So there, um, there was, uh, so that was my pledge, uh, of course, because I worked in the international staff with America and in NATO headquarters and, and so um, I found it um, I found it not um, just just mm-hmm. to, to, to forget to forget the American input okay so what happened at this bridge in Ena what does it have to do with Ohio and why are there statues and plaques and references all over the village to bison? Um, the um, so the American um, 37 division was um, pushing back the Germans. They came from the Wipers Front and they were already um, uh, ending at the Skeld River in Altenaarde Eine. And um, of course, that was the first of November 1918, which means 11 days before uh, armistice. Yeah. And so the Germans were defending very strongly. The, the east bank of the, of the Schelde River in Aldenade because, you know, um, peace for territory. So the, the more, the more land they would, they would hold, the, 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 the less they, they should give away. You see what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, with a peace talk because at that time, I know, German lost the war. But the, the, the last weeks of, of, um, of, uh, of, of, of 1918, of our first world war, were very heavy for the, first of all for the town because, um, the, yeah, the Germans were in anger and revenge. They, they had the Dikke Bertha on the 8th, uh, in Oudenaarde, uh, Volkerham, Mater. They, uh, they bombarded with, with big shells the, the town of Oudenaarde. And then the, the most of the people, civilian people died in the last two weeks of the war. So the Germans were uh, holding strong the east river of the Scheldt and the Americans were on the west side and, and, well, they were blocked. Basically the pressure was on, things were tight. And then the Americans stationed in Ena at this bridge over the Schelde had an idea. Um, and so uh, one night, well, the night of uh, 1st of November uh, 1918, um, the 37th Division asked um, to, to the 112th uh, Engineer Regiment for volunteer somebody <laughs> to swim over the Scheldt and, 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 and draw, draw uh, well, not to draw the, the German positions of the machine guns and, and so on. 
and, and come back and, 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 and tell us, and then they could shell more accurately. So there was so, a so sergeant. Did, did they ask like one one person or a few people to? Yeah, yeah, they asked a volunteer, a volunteer to go to the other side. So one person was expected to go across. See where yeah. all the German uh, yeah. weapons yeah. were, so, and, and take a note, and, and then swim back in the middle yeah. of the night. Yeah, yeah, in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's correct. And okay. so that that happened the first of November, uh, nineteen eighteen. So first uh, of November. I shouldn't I shouldn't tell you about the temperature. Okay. <laughs> there was a guy, Sergeant Smithheisler, Paul Smithheisler, was uh, a very good swimmer. Uh, you know, back in the U.S. And, and also he was a, a, an art, a, a kind of architect, and so he was able to draw and, and, and to have, uh, you know, uh, draw, uh, make drawings. Yeah, sort of accurate. And, and accurate be, be accurate, yeah. yeah that, would accurate, be, that would be valuable, yeah. Yeah, indeed. So this sergeant in the Ohio Army National Guard's 37th Infantry Division, Paul Smith-Heisler of Mount Vernon, Ohio, volunteered for a daring night reconnaissance of enemy lines. And he swam across the Skelda, alone, under cover of darkness, to sketch diagrams of enemy machine gun nests and artillery positions. Managing to dodge German sentries and patrols, Smithheisler returned with valuable intelligence. And that night, the 37th Division attacked the Germans on the other side of the Skelda. The operation was a success. On the 1st of November 1918, the 37th Division crossed the bridge at Aina in what was a crushing blow for the Germans. Ten days later, the First World War came to an end. Now Christowala was concerned that the stories of the Americans who had helped save Aina during World War I were not fully known or appropriately appreciated and he pledged to continue digging into the history to find out what had happened here. But that event put a whole new meaning on this bridge. You know, it looms large in the consciousness of Aina. It had been destroyed and rebuilt multiple times, but after the war between 1928 and 1930, it was rebuilt as the first pre-stressed concrete bridge in Belgium. The bridge was donated by the state of Ohio to commemorate the bravery of the 37th Division and the street leading to the centre of Aina today is called Ohio Street. The village's main square is officially Ohio Square. The depictions of bisons on the Ohio Bridge show animals of incredible power, hardwired to protect head cocked downwards in defence in anticipation of a fight. But bison have come to be a symbol not only of strength, but of unity, resilience and community. Recent legislation has installed the North American bison as the new national mammal of the United States. Intertribal councils have signed treaties to establish alliances to re-establish bison on their lands. On the verge of extinction in the 1800s, Americans bison now number about 500,000 and live on ranches in all 50 states across parks, refuges and private conservances. Just as bison appear on Ohio Bridge, 
They have featured on the logo of Brauerei Knudde since the brewery's earliest days. A bison appears on the labels of all their beers and on the glassware of the brewery. It's the name they give their second beer, the cherry beer bison. There's a statue of a bison in the garden of the house and brewery on the Fabrikstraat, opposite the cemetery where Brauerei Knudde is located. The bison is a symbol of your community, and without their Aina tribe, Kanuda would never have survived. Part 2. It was everything here. The, our brewery, under the name... Brewery Knudde, exists since 1919. It was uh, my grand-grandfather, Alphonse Knudde, who, uh, therefore, he was living in Mullem. Mullem is also a small town, part of Odenard. In 1919, after the First World War, we don't know why. He came to Ene and started here the, this brewery. Under um, the name, the Another brewery. It, it's also um, with his whole family who came here. So after the Fonsknudde, there came uh, then afterwards it was uh, Omer Knudde. was second generation. Omer Knudde was my grandfather. He died in 1944. It's not because of uh, the war, but he had uh, failed, his, his heart failed. And at that time, my, my father, Louis, was, was 18 years old. He was the uh, eldest of uh, the oldest of, of three of three uh, young men um, uh, people. So he has to do the brewery further, and he started uh, the brewery studies, the brewery, uh, brewing studies in Ghent. After four, uh, four years, he came back and started then uh, with his mother at the brewery, and he built also like you see the buildings now. The buildings you see now uh, are from the year, I think the years uh, 1952 53. Also, with all the materials inside, all the copper you see, it's from that time. Louis Canuda, Levin's father, was a prankster, often dressing up in elaborate costumes and staging publicity stunts. Once, he adorned a prison outfit covered the brewery windows with images of bricks and arranged for a bailiff to come and arrest them in front of the Aina villagers who had spilled out onto the streets to watch. However, he was also an innovator and during the 1950s, Louis ended the disparate farm activity that was taking place on site and constructed new buildings in which to install upgraded brewing equipment. The machinery he installed then is the same equipment being used today. You have two brothers so uh, it's Levin, Stephen, and Piet. Yes. And Peter. Peter. Sorry. Ma, ma, that's officially a Peter. Okay. But in in any is a PT. PT. Because in 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 Oudenaarde always when it's, it it works, you place an E after a word. Uh-huh, uh-huh. By me, it's not possible. Levin E. <laughs> sounds. No, it's, it's just Levin. St- what, so what do they call st- you? Just uh, leaving. It's impossible. Yeah. Stevie, it's also uh, yeah. possible. Yeah. So, so you three, you grew up with a father who was a brewer. Yeah, yeah, indeed. 
So you were kind of, I guess, you were in and around these buildings when you were younger. Um, a lot of people don't grow up in a brewery. What's, what's it like growing up in a brewery? There's always uh, people on the brewery. Like uh, say, we say that it's also at, uh, in Flemish, always life in a brewery. And that's really one. But life in a brewery means when you are brewing, there is plenty of, of life. But in a brewery, you see, there's plenty of people who come every day, morning, evening. There's also, always there's people at the brewery. It was never, never still in this place. So uh, that's pleasant to grow up in that environment. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. And also we have uh, a lot of uh, place here to, to grow up because it, it's not uh, a small house. It, it's, it's a big garden also. The, th the three of you guys that went on to work in other professions, so you yeah. didn't go on to become brewers in your father's no. footstep, even though you, we, you have the brewery today as a, as a it set It was of forbidden uh, by our father. So what did he say? I, we, you can see you don't, uh, you don't uh, prolong the nation, uh, you don't uh, continue the, the brewery from uh, from professional way. Yeah, it's normally. Why, why did he say that? Well, it's not. It was not because in, in his time, uh, he lives from from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and the 70s. Uh, all the activities stays for a brewer also in his small town Eine. You don't have to see further than Eine. You have our beer is not at this time even uh, possible to drink in Odenaarde. In the, the big city of, yeah. of uh, yeah. we, uh, everything we was localized and, and small breweries served their local communities. Uh, just the local communities. Every people lives in the local local community. There was not. Uh, so, so he, he saw that was changing. He saw yeah, And he, he was like, I don't want my sons to have to... Do that and to see another way to run uh, the brewery. And he says, uh, don't begin at it. It's not possible to do it. Louis Knudde, Lieben's father, was in his 60s during the mid-1980s when the brewing industry in Belgium began to change significantly. Larger beer companies such as Interbrew began buying up smaller concerns stripping them for their brands and properties before eventually closing them down. Production became more industrial, with larger quantities produced in fewer facilities. Beer distribution changed as well, with burgeoning regional and national distribution networks eroding the local delivery runs of village breweries. There seemed to be a continuing shift in tastes too, away from acidity and maltiness, the hallmarks of Canuda Brown, towards lagers and sweeter ales. All of this threatened to hurt Brauerei Knudde in the long term as a small, hyper-local brewery. As Louis Knudde was approaching retirement, he made it clear to his sons that he did not want them to continue with the family brewery. As Levin says, it was forbidden. But of course, Levin and his brothers ploughed on. 1993, we have made a uh, uh, company, yeah. a company, limited company, company. Uh, limited company. That was in 1993. And was that because your father was retiring? Yeah, he was. He was retiring at that time in 1993. He was born in 1926. 
So he was uh, 1993 or 67 uh, years, 67 years old. Yeah, yeah, 67 years old. He was retired since 60. He was 65. And you know, at that point, obviously, he he retires. You have this in the family, but you all have your other jobs, yeah. and you probably all have families as well, right? So you have, I think, you're a you were a maths teacher, or you're a maths teacher in mathematics. So yeah. Even. Um, <coughs> Stephen I was, is a, I was, eh? you're, so you're, you're also retired. <laughs> yes. Stephen is an engineer and um, Peter was a lawyer. Yeah. So, I mean, is there a question of, look, we're really busy here. We have our families, we have our jobs. Should we could talk about closing the brewery down? Did that discussion ever happen? Yes, yes. But when, uh, before we started the company in 1993, we have to talk. It was not possible that just one or two, not uh, the third one or just one. It was uh, we stop the brewery or we do it uh, the three one. So, like, was there a, like? Did you ever say maybe we can just sell it to someone that we like who can continue here, or was it we don't want to sell it? We'd rather just stop. No, no. It it was uh, the question was can we continue the activities and. Uh, really uh, doesn't take too long to answer that question. First or trees, afterwards we go to tell it to our father. And what did he and, say? And the, and first time he was surprised and he asked some people he know from the Buri Roman what to think of uh, my son's want, uh, wants to, to continue the, the brewery. And the answer over there was when it when they let it of they make it uh, little, not too big, it will work. Yeah. And that was it was uh, I think uh, one year before uh, we start the company that he says okay uh, let's let's go for it also but on a on a, a smaller way, scale a smaller scale. Yeah. I mean was and was part of that. I mean obviously it was to do with the fact that it was your family brewery and you know your father and your grandfather. So like. It was an emotional thing to keep yeah, it going. Yeah, that also. That's also because we we left here all all time. We we were not born here, but after a few weeks we came here. This it was our uh, our youth. Uh, it was everything here. It was everything here. The Canilla brothers went on to brew just three times a year, each batch five thousand liters and they would sell their beer only in Ena and Odenarde. Now, Louis Knudde passed away just a few years after the brothers took over, on the 22nd of November 1995, aged 69. The brothers were on their own. Perhaps it was in seeing Brauerei Knudde lose its figurehead, or maybe it was a response to the determination of Louis' sons. But the community of Ena rallied around. Louis had been a larger-than-life character, and the village had loved him. Now they would love his sons. Locals began helping with everything, including brewing. Um, now, the, 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 you mentioned that a lot of the, the brewery equipment was, is from the 50s, from, yeah. Uh, yeah. from yeah. the time of yeah. Louis. Louis. So um, you have an old um, uh, mash tun, which is, is copper based and a copper kettle. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Compared to a lot of people who have scaled up to, you know, more efficient <laughs> stainless steel, you know, automatic. Stainless steel, uh, everything is 
Yeah. Today so, it's almost. So it's like always, what's it like, kind of brewing on, on on one of those systems? I mean, I guess you don't know otherwise because that's where your father brewed, and yeah, that's where you guys uh, have always all, brewed. All the cutters and all the the materials you see is it's from the the fifties. It never changed since then. So we we use and we uh, follow also the production process as it was, like our fathers brewed the beer here. That must be very manual. Yeah. So how, how are you doing? Is it the three brothers that do that? No, together? no. When we are brewing, you can also see it in the book. We have a, a great team of friends, friends of the brewery. He came here one day, not just to, to brew, but also to, to eat and to taste the, the beer from earlier times. Yeah, so there, there's a whole bunch of people that are yeah, mentioned here, which is really cool. The brewing um, team. So you have like Danny in the malt solder. Yes. Uh, Didier in the Brouwers house. Yes. Uh, his uh, Didier, his grandfather was also a workman here. Ah, okay. He okay, was, so it's also in his family. My father has uh, uh, from the 50s to the 70s, there were two uh, workmen here. They retired and then we were the workmen. Yeah, because yeah, he has three sons neighbor. instead of three daughters, he has lucky. And Dennis is, he Dennis does a lot of the... That's all ten, there's a technician. Eh? He's a technician. Dennis ten, is a technician. Yes. Klaus? Klaus, uh, sometimes to, uh, to put the, um, the malt when after cooking I out of... Uh, ah, yeah, the, 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 draft, the spent draft, grain. The draft, uh, spent grain. You know, you the spent grain. Uh, the, the draft. Draft, yeah. Yeah, draft. spent I, grain, you take I it spent, out of the mash tun when you... That's his speciality. Okay, yeah. So you have the, all the, the, this bunch of people that are helping out. They are helping. It's not so, they are not every time we're brewing. They are not uh, so how everyone. Often, how often do you brew? Uh, when it's before Corona, it was uh, three times a year. Okay, three times a year. So that was it's also like a big party. It, it is. A, it's like it's not like it is a big. party. It is a big party. Yeah, obviously. In, it's in a, this it's in this uh, location, at, at one o'clock p.m., it's a. Uh, it's a big restaurant here. Wow. So you, you have tables have and everything? We have a special uh, Tante Patti who uh, is cooking here everything, another meal for all the helpers. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so it, like it, the, the brewery kind of really, in that way, really does belong to the community of Aina. Yeah, and can people true. come along or is it just those that are kind of working in the brewery that day? They can come along when, when we, we know it. And when they come, they have to, have to help, eh? Not in other uh, costume, no, it, it's, it's you to have help. To come, you have to come and work. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's to, yeah. you have to deserve it, eh? your, yeah. uh, your meal at, the, at noon. Brew days became parties. Everyone was welcome, so long as they rolled up their sleeves to work. If you helped, you were rewarded with a meal in a cafe beside the brewery and draft pours of Knudde Brown into the evening. As Levin says... You have to deserve your meal at noon. And so the tribe of Aina came to save the brewery, cementing the social bonds of the community through their shared labour. It's, it's like now, uh, my father just left the place. Uh, he's, he, he said also, uh, I, let, uh, I let the owner free to say what he wants. Uh, so, and that's in fact also a metaphor for, uh, yeah, for how it has been. Uh, there was no obligation or no... Uh, weight on our shoulders to, to continue still isn't but yeah this is Lander Knudde Levin Knudde's son yeah we do feel that it's 
something special that, that it's something that you can just throw away um, and we don't want to either I guess if I'm speaking for um, yeah this generation of my sister and niece When they were old enough the children of the Knudda brothers would help out too now 31 years old 29 years old and 26 years old respectively Lander Knudda Inge Knudda and Charlotte Knudda are approaching the age their fathers were when they took over the brewery. So, what's going to happen in the future? I, well, I, uh, how should I say? I guess the, like it is now, the, the three brothers, they also sought for a solution which was compatible with, uh, with a, a professional life next to it. And um, uh, I also think that that's, in some sense, the, the the strength of of this, yeah, of this brewery that it's not the, f- the primary focus. Um, uh, you have already been discussing. That it makes it you don't have to go into a com uh, yeah, into a story of, of selling and uh, yeah, a commercial uh, story, um, so that you can just remain the the real character of the beer. That you don't have to yeah. Uh, Put wine and uh, water in, in, in yeah, the wine or like in the beer. Yeah, it's like you don't have to compromise. Yeah, exactly. You can well, and, and you hear that a lot. Yeah, you have been discussing it uh, just uh, some minutes ago. Uh, these bigger uh, businesses, really, a uh, company is not even any other word. It's really a business of beer brewing. They indeed they want to do to uh, make their the market bigger, and so they have to make compromises, and they did so these specific characters of beers they they yeah get closer to each other and you don't have these spoken out types anymore and therefore yeah some people say that that's the reason that nowadays also in belgium there um started a lot of microbreweries um which are yeah don't want to compromise and just do their thing and do what they think think that is good uh, without this, this big story, this, this, uh, we, we don't have to make money out of this. Uh, and I guess that's really the strength. And I guess that's also the way that yeah, if my uh, sister and niece already have some, some picture of the future, then it won't be indeed a, a commercial one. It will be a, a heritage uh, or a, yeah, a tradition that's, that has to be put further and indeed. But... I think I think the the question doesn't really isn't really there yet because uh, as you have uh, spoken uh, about there's a lot of people involved in in this brewing nowadays so um, yeah I hope at least that 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 can continue for like decades because uh, yeah it's really yeah it sounds like you have like a support network indeed, of people who who you know you're the family obviously and you know you're next in line I guess in terms of ownership but there's an ownership I think felt by you know people in the community that come here on brew days that you know are there in the cafe afterwards that help destem the cherries that you know help with the mash out and, and, and you know all the, all the different parts of the process so mm-hmm. like you're not alone kind of going into the next phase yourselves indeed and it's really admirable what they created here uh, this really this community uh, uh, is really nice to, to just yeah it's like an evidence that that there's a bunch of people working together to make this happen instead of just one or three um, yeah people 
So that, that's really also the, the heart, I guess, of the, of the beer is really the, the people that are, that are involved. Um, and so I guess that also makes it a more solid base in some sense for, for a small brewery like this. That it's, it's part of the story of, of the village, of different people's lives uh, here close by and, and further. So yeah, that's, I guess, um, well, I see... Uh, in that sense, that's a, that will be a part for future if they can continue uh, that way of working. So all this talk of community makes me reflect on the story of Eina, a story of bison and beer and bridges. But as I would find out, the story of the Ohio Bridge still had one major twist, something which would connect the Einanars once again with the Americans who 100 years previously had saved their village. I call Chris Dewalla again to learn more about what happened on that mission of the 37th Division across the Skelda in 1918. And I learned something pretty incredible. Paul Smith Heisler did not achieve his mission alone. He, he was in, in a swimming suit uh, with a plastic bag with, with a pencil and a piece of paper. And so he swam <laughs> under, yeah, under, uh, I mean, by dawn, uh, no, by, by uh, evening setting. He, he swam uh, the Skeld River, but of course under the water. At that time, uh, he called in his memories about 100 yards. 100 yards, so that's about 30, 35 meters. And um, underwater, he reached the enemy bank uh, in the middle of the night. Um, he was not spotted at that time, so he he uh, he, he went, uh, well, you know, uh, with his belly on the ground, he went all, all around the positions, he took notes, and then, but it, 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 it lasted a bit too long, and, and the sun already was coming up, Uh-oh. and so he, yeah, but he, he, he rushed to the, uh, to the river back again. He, um, he, uh, just saw with, with, with the valuable uh, drawings in his plastic, uh, bag, and he, he was swimming back underwater, but he was, uh, discovered by the Germans, um, uh, and so, uh, he was shot, well, I mean, they were, they started shooting, but they didn't, they didn't touch him. He, he, uh, of course he was exhausted, uh, when reaching the friendly, uh, bank, uh, of the river scout, and then, um, uh, of course, the, the river the bank river at that time was very muddy. I mean, it's not like like today. So um, he was he was he hardly could get out of the water. And there was a, a his friend. It was a soldier, a private, private Frank Burke. He was there. He was there. He, he waited for his sergeant coming mm-hmm. back, and he pulled him out of the water. Um, and that was nearly done. At uh, but suddenly the Germans. Uh, fired a, a gas grenade um, to, towards them and they exploded, uh, this grenade exploded not too far from them. Um, Frank Burke, the, the, the private, he saw his, yeah, with, 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 the, with the sergeant, the, the very exhausted sergeant in his arms, laying on the ground, he saw the, the yeah, the, 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 the uh, importance of, of of, of, of the thing, and then he he had a gas mask, not his sergeant because he was in a swimming suit, but he had one gas mask and he put it on his sergeant's head. The, the sergeant was a bit, okay, uh, groggy was done, and ran, the sergeant ran with his gas mask, ran to the division headquarters, gave all his uh, pre- pre- 
his uh, accurate um, uh, information of, of German machine guns and so on. And the same night, they, um, uh, the Allied artillery uh, already attacked the, uh, the positions and were able to eliminate them. And the next day, they, they had already a, a bridgehead on the other side of the river. So, so far, so good. But Private, uh, Private Frankberg, a uh, few weeks, a few days later, in, in a hospital in Oudenaarde, died of his burned lungs. Now, that's the story. And, um, of course, uh, Sergeant Paul Smithheiser has survived the war, had two children, uh, two sons. Um, uh, Paul Smithheiser died in, in the 80s, I think. Uh, and the two sons um, were in Oudenaarde in 2006, um, already, uh, I mean, in their, in their 80s, you know, of course. Uh -huh. and, um, and, 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 and that was it so far. And now in 2010, I came on and I said, uh, well, okay, beautiful, but what about Frank Burke? I mean, he was the, he was the guy, he was the hero. And of course, Frank, uh, the, the other, the sergeant as well, of course, because uh, of his act. But uh, I mean, where is the, where is the uh, attention to, to Frank uh, Burke? Where is the attention to Frank Burke? Would Frank Burke and what he did just be forgotten? What was Cristoala going to do to make sure that that didn't happen? Five and five. Frank Burke, a corporal from Cleveland, Ohio, agreed to wait on the bank of the Skelda for Paul Smith-Heisler's return on the night of that undercover mission. When Smith-Heisler had completed his reconnaissance, he swam back across the Skelda, but the sun was coming up and seeing a figure moving in the water, the Germans began firing from their side of the river. Burke was waiting on the Aina bank and helped pull the exhausted Smith-Heisler up out of the water. The Germans then began firing gas shells at the two American soldiers. Sensing the gas, Burke took out his gas mask but realised immediately that Smith-Heisler in a swimming suit did not have one. So Burke put his gas mask on the face of Smith-Heisler who, now being able to breathe, ran back to camp to give over the drawings. Burke followed after him, but was exposed to the German gas. That night, the Americans attacked the Germans on the other side of the Skelda with full knowledge of their artillery positions, thanks to Smithheisler's drawings. The actions of Smith-Heisler and Burke were responsible for defeating the heavily fortified German Hindenburg Line and they helped to end the war. Paul Smith-Heisler became an architect in Cleveland, Ohio and he died in 1982 
at the age of 93. Frank Burke, however, died in Belgium a few weeks after that mission in Ena in 1918. At first, it was thought that he died of influenza, but later findings showed it was because of the gas. As Christowala says, he died of his burned lungs. So did the family of Frank Burke even know what he had done? Had his heroic acts even been acknowledged? Christowala went on a mission. And then I started, um, I started uh, my research. I, um, well, it, it, it took me two, three years. I, I think I started with 37 Burke's soldier, Burke, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, died in the First World War. Uh, but to keep it short, um, finally I had to, uh, uh, well, I, what I knew, and, and then now I'm, I'm coming related to, 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 to the bridge and to the bison. I knew, of course, that the 37th Division, or Infantry Division, was previously a National Guard, as it is today still. And the National Guards were always uh, from one uh, province, uh, one, one state. And so the 37th Division was, um, was selected in, in that time uh, in the state of Ohio. So, of course, I, I had to... Uh, my research. Yes, you were looking for. Over. You were looking for a Burke in Ohio, basically. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And then finally, I found, I found, um, I found a, a name. I found. Uh, I was in touch with with the uh, uh, with the veterans of in, in, in Cleveland, so the veterans of the 37th Division. Finally, I had a name. I have the first name. I had a, a, a serial number. And I even had an address and then of his mother. And then I went on Google Maps. I saw that uh, the house, I found the house on Google Maps. I, I never was there, I mean, physically, but I found the house um, in Cleveland. And I saw this was a big house with, with I, at least three, four rooms. That was a parental house of Frank Burke. So I said, uh-oh, that... Uh, I, I'm looking now because I think he must have uh, had brothers and sisters, and perhaps they still live, or, or their family still lives. And then I went down, and finally I was I was blocked. I, I uh, the uh, the town um, administration of uh, of Cleveland was very uh, well. Well, they didn't anything for me to my request. So the administrative bodies in Cleveland, Ohio, wouldn't help. So how do you track down the family of someone from a hundred years ago who died in a foreign country? You know, records get lost, memories fade, administrative requests are often ignored. You know, did anyone in Ohio actually care? Would Christowala ever make sure that Frank Burke got the recognition he deserved for what he did for Aina? And then Chris had an idea. Newspapers. And finally, I was I was desperate. I uh, I found. Uh, I said I must go to the newspaper, and then um, um, I found the uh, the Ohio Plain Dealer. Ohio Plain Dealer is a newspaper which covers well the state of Ohio, but not mm-hmm. not all the United States. And then, so uh, I was in touch with the uh, the correspondent for for military and foreign affairs. I explained the whole the whole thing. Um, I didn't give away all details because, you know, I, I wanted you to, wanted to confirm your, yeah, confirm yeah, your I, I wanted to avoid some, some crazy guys, you know, who were to be in, in, in the highlights. 
Chris Tuala arranged with newspaper reporter at the Ohio Plain dealer Brian Albrecht to write a story with some details on what happened and to include a call out to those who might know how to get in touch with the family of Frank Burke. So the story ran. Would anyone get in touch? Cynthia Kintel was a, how do you call that, a genealogist or so? Genealogist, yeah, yeah, who yeah, like family lines, yeah, bloodlines. Yeah, 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 and said, oh, a piece of cake, I, I found them. And, and, and um, she found a, a one person who was the son of a uh, of the sister of Frank Burke who died in, in the First World War, you see? And then it started, and then finally um, I was in touch with the family, um, and then... Um, what, was, what, was their, what was their reaction when, you know, you were able to say oh, your, my, great, your uh, great uncle was, tears, a, was a hero? Tears, 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 yeah, tears. Because they, they knew about Frank who died, uh, you know, for, for the freedom of, of, of Belgium, who died, but I mean, they never, he died as a young man of, of 20, 21 or But they didn't realize that he gave up his gas mask for us, another sergeant to run and get the information uh, Indeed, indeed. So, yes, indeed. And, but more important, um, I, I went to the mayor in Odenhard and said, look, this is happening here. I want to get the two families together in Oudenaar because they never saw each other. They didn't know about each other. Wow. Both lived, both, yeah, both families live, live, still live in, in, in Ohio, but I mean, you know, Ohio is not, <laughs> is not that small. And so the mayor said, okay, Chris, yeah, you have my green light. Um, he uh, gave me uh, a hotel with 10 rooms uh, paid uh, for a week, paid by, by the town. So imagine that. Paul Smithheisler's family and Frank Burke's family, who had never met, got on a plane to Belgium. Christowala went to the airport and picked them up on the same morning from two different flights coming in from Ohio. The same morning, they met each other, uh, the Frank family and the Frank Burke family and the Paul Smithheisler family met each other. Uh, they were about... Uh, five, five, something like that. You know, five from five, one, five, five yeah. from the other. What was yeah. that moment? What was that moment like? You were there to witness it. Oh, tears, tears, uh, very emotional. Um, yeah, that, of course. So, Jane, first of all, what did you know about your great uncle Frank when you were growing up? So, this is Marco Werman of PRI's The World talking to Jane Pippick about her great uncle Frank Burke. This was recorded in 2014, very shortly after that meeting of the Smith-Heisler and Burke families in Belgium. Well, my mother, Frances Burke Pippick, always talked about Great Uncle Frank. She told us that he was a soldier in World War I and that he died of influenza. That's what I knew. Right. That's kind of a one-line story, though. So you start to dig in and learn more about Great Uncle Frank's story. What did you find out? Well, actually, we weren't the ones doing the digging. Christowal, a retired colonel from the Belgium Army, decided that he was going to make it his mission to find Frank Burke. And he checked records, databases, contacted people in Ohio, and eventually an article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer said, looking for members of Private Frank Burke's family, and a genealogist there said, hey, you know, I know those folks. Wow. So this Belgian man, Christoval, was pretty determined to find you and tell you these stories about your great uncle Frank that you didn't know. 
Well, I learned that Frank was part of a secret mission at the very end of World War I with his sergeant from the 37th Brigade, Sergeant Paul Smith-Heisler. We met Jack Smith-Heisler's son, who was 85 in Belgium. He told my family the story that his father, Paul, had told him. He had asked my great-uncle Frank if he would help him on this mission. So what was the mission? What, what did the sergeant ask your great-uncle Frank to do? He asked my great-uncle Frank to stay at the side of the river, and then Sergeant Smith-Heisler swam across the river, snuck around the German machine guns and the artillery, made a map. He was very good at map drawing, put it in a special waterproof pouch that had been designed, you know, specifically for the mission because, of course, in those days they didn't have plastic. And then he got back in the water and swam back to the Allied side. And he asked Frank that if he got in trouble, would he help him? But when he got him back into the river, he was he was spotted. And, um, well, here's what Jack says his father told him. He said, I had no strength. And he said, by then I'm gasping for, you know, air. So this is Jack Smith-Heisler speaking, the son of Paul Smith-Heisler. And he's talking about what his father Paul told him about Frank Burke on the events of that day. And Burke pulled him out of the water, and he said, I remember he slapped the gas mask on me. And then he said, I thought I smelled the gas. And he said, later on, I realized that Burke got some gas. He never said anything about Private Burke other than, you know, he saved my life. If he'd have put his gas mask on first, he'd have been okay and I'd have been dead. Wow. So your great-uncle Frank, did he die of influenza or did he die there that day? We're not really sure. Uh, He died within a month of that secret mission. No one really knows, but we think now that he died of poison gas. As you said, Jane, this happened just weeks before the end of World War I. In terms of the whole story of World War I, what do you think it meant that your great-uncle Frank, Frank Burke, took on this very risky mission with his sergeant? Was it an isolated moment of heroism, or was it more significant? Well, in this case, Sergeant Smith-Eisler's actions and my great-uncle Frank's that night have now become attributed to breaking what they called the Hindenburg Line that the Germans had set up all along Belgium and France. So by getting this map, they were able to quickly take out the Germans and build a bridge across the river. And that day, they literally say between three and 5,000 American, British, and French troops crossed at that point in the river, and they broke the Hindenburg Line. Back to Krista Walla now. What happened when those families got together in Ana? Did they go to Ohio Bridge? Well, did, did both walk over the bridge as well? Yes, well, that's, that's my, my point. In 2014, uh, I, I, can, I can send you pictures from, from that. Um, the, um, I organized a, a big, big ceremony in the presence of, uh, of the American ambassador. Um, on the bridge, on the, literally on the bridge, and um, with yeah, with, with thousands of people, um, uh, it was very difficult to get away with the people because we had to do the you know the ceremony, the speeches, 
and at that, which was a very emotional. I arranged, um, I arranged roses for the Americans, and they threw uh, at a certain moment. They, so the, the five and five family members they they threw the roses in the Skelter River, uh, you know, from the bridge. And uh, well, you know, that that was very emotional, of course. Uh, uh-huh, of course. That was on Friday the 26th of September 2014. The members of both families walked onto the middle of the Ohio Bridge and threw roses into the Skelda River where Paul Smith Heisler and Frank Burke had conducted their secret mission. The American ambassador was there too, as were members of the Belgian and American militaries. Levin Knuda was on the bridge in his capacity as an elected councillor for Ena and as the owner of the local brewery. So you just came back from Belgium, where you met some of these people involved in remembering your great-uncle Frank. What was it like being there? Well, you know, we were absolutely shocked at the amount of thought and planning. They had small military band presentations with over 500 soldiers. They invited the Queen's Grenadier Army to perform for us. Just for your great-uncle Frank? Just for Sergeant Smith-Heisler and great-uncle Frank, they were rededicating the bridge that was built after the war very near where Sergeant Smith-Heisler had done his swim and put up a beautiful plaque of Frank and Paul Smith-Heisler. Jane, when you finally met Chris Duvall, I mean, I know World War I tourism is big in Belgium, uh, but this sounds very personal for Chris Duvall. I mean, a retired colonel, but he was so determined to find you. Why did he do it? Well, you know, it's a little hard to say, except for that I think Cristobal has never really forgotten what the Americans did for his country in both World War I and World War II. And I think he he had a soft spot for Frank. He really wanted him to be recognized because Sergeant Smith-Heisler suffered very greatly from PTSD, what they called back then um, shell shock. And he went to his grave saying... This mission never would have happened if it weren't for that kid, Burke. And I think he felt that until he found Frank Burke, they weren't really doing justice to the historical facts. And it's just so interesting to us now that these strangers in another country have remembered him, they've never forgotten him, they've celebrated him, and they continue to celebrate him. There are few better lessons in togetherness for the people of Aina than the demonstration of community spirit by the Americans of the 37th Division at Ohio Bridge. There's no greater lesson in unity for them than the camaraderie shown by Frank Burke to Paul Smith-Heisler. The stories of Ohio Bridge and of Browery Canuda, and of Aina as a place, are all the same.
the uh, the reception after the uh, after the ceremony. As I said, what is it, 200 meters walking? Um, yeah, um, they they we all went together to to, to the brewery. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and and there there were some you know uh, some presents they were uh, exchanged and, and and so on, and some speeches by the mayor, and then a. There was also, uh, of course, we went. We went to the brewery because that was the uh, in in the small town of Eine, the village of Eine. This is the the biggest <laughs> the biggest possible uh, you know town hall to 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 give a reception. You see what I mean? After the short ceremony, the whole party walked the 500 meters or so from the center of the Ohio Bridge to Brauerei Knudde on the Fabrikstraat. Suits and military uniforms mingled in the brewery garden and bar. There was an exhibition about Smithheiser and Burke in the cafe next to the brewery. A marching band, wearing feathered hats and white gloves, played their brass instruments, as a pair of flagpole bearers held aloft an American flag beside a Belgian one. Beers were handed out. You know, the Americans told Leeuwenknudde that it tasted acidic and was very different to what they drank back home. The, this beer was served, of course, at the reception amongst, amongst, of course, uh, soft drinks. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure if they they took some bottles, uh, bottles bison beer back to to the state. I, I can't recall, but um, yeah. But it, 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 yeah. Makes, it makes total sense, I guess, that the brewery has carried the name of the bison on their yeah. on their beers, like because it's a, it's not only associated with that story of war but it's kind of now a symbol of the town right yes it is yeah um everybody knows the the bison bridge and the ohio bridge and the ohio square so everyone is drinking canuda beer at this reception the bison had been on the bridge now they were here on the bottles and glassware and garden. There was nowhere else than Brauerei Knudde that such a significant moment could have been commemorated. No other way the dead could be remembered. Nothing else they could have been drinking but Knudde Brown and Knudde Bison. Every drop filtered through the decomposing bodies of previous generations of Einanars, who now cemetery juice could contribute once again to this community on the banks of the Skelda. Thanks to Visit Flanders for their support in producing this podcast and thanks to you for listening. My name is Brendan Kearney. This has been the Belgian Smack Podcast. Until next time, love what you do.